Warning. The Kingdom Cast podcast contains spoilers about comic books, movies, and entertainment in general, as well as anything else that crosses their minds. Please do not take any medical advice seriously, nor legal advice that they may or may not give out. For that matter, it's probably for the best that you take nothing that they say seriously. Ladies and gentlemen, droids and clones, welcome back to another episode of Kingdom Cast Podcast, the podcast that offers in-depth, serious discussion about things that should seriously not be discussed in depth. Joining us again tonight is the world's foremost living authority on the Submariner, Sandra Swindle. <laughs> I'm Stan Daniel. With me, as always, is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. How's the party? <laughs> Party's dead. <laughs> Why is the party dead, Albert? <laughs> Nobody showed up. <laughs> well, Sandra and I are here. That's right. See? We're we count. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> Very sweet of you, Albert. I tell you what, let's get right in it tonight. Sandra, thank you for coming back again. I thank you, Albert, but you're being very contentious tonight. So mm -hmm. We've got a few emails that I want to touch on. We've got one really, really good email that I can't wait for Albert to hear. We've got one email for you, Sandra, and this one is from Juan. And I believe Juan has written us before. I believe we've talked about Juan before. I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Juan is in California, but he doesn't say so in this. And it was just a one-liner. It says, Sandra, I respect you, but why so? Submariner, thank you for the podcast, Juan. Why Submariner what? I think he's asking what appeals to you about Submariner, rather than a more sensible choice like, say, Victor Von Doom. <laughs> Victor Von Doom also. <laughs> or Speedball. He's just said Speedball. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, Speedball or Submariner. Hmm. I know who I'm going with. <laughs> reading comics back in the 70s when Subby still had a book, a regular ongoing book. There was just something about the character that appealed to me far more than the more popular comic book superheroes. I didn't really try to analyze it then. I think I was like 10, maybe 9. There was a lot of things that when I look back, I realized, okay, this is probably why I like the character. But when I was 10, I just thought he was a very intriguing character. He wasn't a good guy all the time. He wasn't a bad guy. He was like a gray character as opposed to a lot of the other characters that were out there. And human. arguably you could say Marvel tries to say that their characters are all human, but more than most, I think, Namor, he's a flawed character. And then it was later because people would ask me the same question, Juan, about, well, why do you like Submariner so much? And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the Submariner, or Namor, one of the things that, that really appealed to me was that he was, now we say biracial, but he was half Atlantean and half human, and he didn't really fit in either society. I mean, he, yes, he ruled the Atlanteans. That's his home. There was also always something about the surface world that appealed to him. At eight or nine, maybe I realized it subconsciously in the 70s, especially in the 70s. It wasn't until I started thinking about it that I realized that for me, I'm also, I'm a biracial person. My mom is Okinawan and my dad is an American a white guy. There was a lot of things that resonated with the character to me because of that. You always get asked on any form, like, who are you? And do you put white? Do you put Asian? Do you put other? So there was a lot of things going on with Subby later on that I realized that that's probably one of the reasons that he really appealed to me. There are other things too. As you go older, you realize this is one male character that is always running around in a Speedo. <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
that's the other side of it. The more I think about it and the way he tried to deal with those situations, as you said, very human. That's one of the main reasons why I like the Submariner. Very good answer. Excellent. So just to break it down, Juan, what I got from that was Speedo 90% (laughs) and characterization 10%. Not quite, but... (laughs) It's his sexy ankles. That's right, those ankle wings. 100% on the ankle wings. Chris writes in, here's one for you, Albert, but it's not necessarily one you have to answer. Chris has written in, I want Church of Albert t-shirts now. (laughs) You okay, Chris? (laughs) We'll get right on that in this account. Well, we got to get our tax-free status first. Yeah, that's exactly right. Here's my favorite question. This is why we're reading the full emails tonight. Are you ready? No. Somebody who signed off as Dead Stew Pool 93 sent us an email. More distributors is just what the comic industry needs. Diamond has held the reins on everything for decades, and they're getting what they deserve now. Comics need to be easier for us to get, and it's because of Diamond that the comic shops are dying. It makes me mad when you support the bad guys in this. Talk about other things because you don't understand comics. Maybe don't talk at all. Dead Stupul 93. What? <laughs> That's not a real email. That is a real email. Is it supposed to be a joke? Like the Dead Stupidul? That's his handle or his email. Stupid pool? Yeah, he didn't sign off. He didn't like one put his name at the bottom. Oh, Aaron okay. put her, his, her, uh, I don't know if Aaron's a he or she, but uh, Aaron put their name at the bottom. All I had to go by him with him, her, whoever, is Dead Stupul 93 was the email. So I just put that on there as the name, rather than say anonymous. They, they do know that you ran a comic book store for like 15 plus years, don't they? Yeah, was, yeah, I, <laughs> I wasn't there for most of it. <laughs> I wasn't really paying attention. Rand, Rand is a bit of a strong word there, Sandra. He signed his name and said, "Here's a key, Albert." After after about only about year four. Well, you yeah, signed checks, you signed the checks to Diamond, didn't you? I showed up on Free Comic Book Day. I remember you being there a couple times a week. Let's just call you dead. <laughs> Uh, Dad, I appreciate your input. I understand how a few people see things at least similarly to the way you do. But the deal is, in the middle of a global emergency, when the entire industry is more apt to fall completely apart than ever before in its history, is not the time for people to go around and designate two large comic book shops as distributors and decide that comics are going to ship on Tuesday and damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. I took a look at the release. Next week, Marvel starts releasing comic books again. Floppies. As we talked about in previous episodes, they've greatly cut down and it's going to be a slow burn getting back to anything resembling a, a normal weekly shipment for Marvel, IDW, Image, several other comics. All these comic book publishers are going to great lengths to not harm the physical shops and not overrun them with a ton of products expecting everything just to snap back in position to the way it was before Diamond had to go on hiatus. Except DC. 
DC is releasing everything and the kitchen sink next week and is releasing a laundry list of action figures and statues and stuff that people are not necessarily going to have the income to waste on it because we've got the highest unemployment in my lifetime. And that's saying something because I lived through the 70s just like Sandra. <laughs> and we are still in a very uncertain time. We've got a situation where Georgia, Sandra, am I correct? Is Georgia not learning that this is not working out the way it wanted? they wanted it to? Yeah, it's like they have repeatedly said, and you, you don't turn the, the economy back on like a switch just by saying yeah. go back to work. I mean, everybody go back to work or re quote unquote reopen. People don't want to go to the restaurants and risk their lives. They don't want to go to the movie theater and risk their lives. They do over here. Let me put it this way. There are some people that do, for sure. And they're usually not wearing masks or standing six feet away from you or reading the signs that say, go down this aisle, don't go down that aisle. So... Yeah, there's definitely a group of people that don't, but it's not enough to, quote unquote, reopen the economy. It's just not, it's not happening. It's not over because we've decided it's over and uh, we want to kickstart the economy. Right. As a matter of fact, California's suffering situations, Texas is, Georgia is, Florida is having a whole political snafu down there, which we go, won't go into, where basically they dismissed the head scientist because the scientist was told to fudge some numbers and she wouldn't. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Georgia is releasing graphs that are uh, are ridiculous. Are yes. <laughs> yeah, because it, the numbers have not subsided. And what I'm saying and how this relates to comics, again, is we're not through this. And DC is acting. First off, it's great that they raised 250000 for comic book shops through Jim Lee's actions and all. That's great. That's wonderful. Thank you for that, DC. Now stop trying to kill the comic book shops. Mm -hmm. This week, they've started to announce their whole slate for DC Digital, and uh, we're going full guns ahead with signing off on CBCS and Midtown Comics distributorships. Yeah, I know they're named something else, but let's call them what they are. They're distributorships run by two giant comic book shops. And when push comes to shove, if it comes down to them having stuff on the shelf or podunk comics in the middle of Arkansas having stuff on the shelf, guess who's going to get stuff on the shelf? Mm -hmm. This is not the time to make decisions like this. If DC Comics had done this one year ago, well, you know what? This would be interesting. To me, they're also like, I'm okay with more distributors. Even I am if, too. Even if you took out the, the pandemic side of it uh -huh. and left it the same way they're doing now, they're doing it too fast. Oh, yeah. It should they're be something like, hey, here's the plan that we're going to start working with more distributors. And four months from now, on this date or this beginning of this month, is we will start rolling stuff out through them. Yeah. Not just, hey, we're doing this, and then like two weeks later, like, ah, here's, here's some stuff. This is something that everybody needs to get back into at a slow pace. I applaud Marvel, I applaud Image and IDW for the way they're approaching it. DC, not so much. As a matter of fact, DC looks like it's trying to drown comic book shops in this mad survival of the fittest situation that they're trying to instigate. Well, IDW could be done for. Yeah, I saw. I just saw that. Yeah, people that they furloughed, that they just said no, they're just gone now. They're we we gotta let them go. Yeah, I saw that too. Something, I something like not. that. I hope that's not the case. Let me also say, there's two other things about this. 
First of all, even if DC had done this a year ago, they'd be stepping off on the wrong foot by picking two comic book retailers as distributors. That's the first negative there. And then the second thing that this letter is talking about, defending Diamond, I don't know of anybody that is happy with Diamond being the only distributor. I mean, even before all this has gone on, I've never been in a comic book store where they're going, yay, Diamond, you know, because there's so many issues with having a single distributor who often can put you over the barrel. You know, nobody is saying, yeah, Diamond is perfect. But what what people that are familiar with the industry are saying is that this is no time when comic book stores are in a very fragile state to just shoot down the major distributor. And the fact, the very fact that no one except DC has jumped the gun on, I mean, has jumped ship from Diamond should tell you something. In fact, that new comic publisher, AWA, that Alonzo and Bill Jemis is running, they signed an exclusive with Diamond. Yeah, so even if you think for some ungodly reason that Stan and Albert don't know what they're talking about as far as Diamond, <laughs> which you are totally wrong on, I'm sorry. Look at every publisher out there. Surely they know something about comic books. The people that are making the comic books, I think they know something. Other than DC, that's the only one. And DC is not dumping Diamond. They're just having two other alternate sources and using Diamond. So even DC isn't jumping ship. There's a lot going on behind the scenes, too. And it came out that DC Comics had it written into their contract with Diamond that they could announce that they're using other distributors given, I I think, like a six-week notice or something like that. The thing is, is that's been part of your contract for quite some time, for several years, DC. And again, why didn't you do it this time last year or the year before or at Christmas? or any other time. Why is it now? It's now because Diamond understood that we're in a situation that's unprecedented and their employees, they were going to have to come up with a new dynamic for their warehouse, their distribution warehouse, and the way the employees worked. Just one employee at that warehouse came down with COVID. (laughs) That warehouse would have been worse than church attendance. There's several churches. There's like 38% of a church in Texas that's been infected. There's a couple of other churches that are having to close completely after reopening because too many of their congregations infected. Same thing with that warehouse. Diamond couldn't risk that. Lives are profits and it's really no decision. And let me also point this out. DC's publisher shut down before Diamond Comics did. Yeah. That's problematic as well. Our point of view on this is that Diamond made the right move, and while we would love to have another distribution center, we wouldn't be overly anxious for it to be a mega conglomerate like CBCS or Midtown Comics because they're biased. They're going to be biased. They can't help but be biased in favor of themselves. This needed to be approached in a better, more orderly way. Diamond Comics are not the bad guys in this. Diamond Comics has been dealt the same hand we all have currently. I don't even think really DC is necessarily the bad guy. They're just going about it their own way. I don't think there's a bad guy in it. But I do think that DC is really putting 
their boot down on the necks of the comic book stores. I really, really do believe that. And I don't know if that's intentional or if they understand what they're doing. Because we also don't really know who's making the calls at DC. I don't think they understand what they're doing. Because remember, the first decision they made was that before they decided they were going to get a a retailing distributor, was that they were just going to release everything they had on digital only. And then they had to walk that back. I don't think they know what they're doing half the time. Yeah. I mean, normally the title of publisher would be the one making these decisions. But again, I don't think it's Jim Lee making these decisions at all. It's very hard to tell up that corporate ladder. There's not a line of succession and there's not anybody jumping forward saying the buck stops here, at least not to the public. Okay, let's move on from there. Aaron has written in, do you really see a future for normal comic books two to three years from now? Is it time for the digital age of comics? I enjoy the podcast. I especially like Albert. Thank you. Okay, Aaron, and we'll handle this real quick because we've talked about it on previous. Not exactly. We haven't addressed the exact question. We'll do this real quick. I'm an optimist. Yes, I believe that there will be floppy comic books that continue to be published in some format. I think it's going to be a very difficult time ahead for physical comic book shops. I think the days of a comic book store that is nothing but a comic book store are about completely and totally at the end, and that's a shame. I believe that comic book shops or direct sales comics will be paired more and more with gaming, as they normally are, which is not necessarily a bad thing, or other situations. It's too early in the pandemic situation to predict anything, anything, especially comic books. Is it time for the digital age of comics? Aaron, they're just not picking up and they're just not bringing it in. Let me give you this example. Albert, how old are your nephews? What age range uh, are your nephews and nieces in? The oldest one is 19 or 20 and the youngest one is a few months old. Uh Uh-huh. And when they go for digital content to be entertained, what are they going for? The nieces that I keep a good bit, which I think are like maybe from six to eight, three ages, to them it's just YouTube. Yeah, you said uh, last podcast that you had to tell them, look, we're not watching anymore this YouTube on the main TV. We can't take it. Yeah, That's where they're going for. Most of the people now, especially the ones that talk about comic books online and on Twitter and Facebook and such, I hate to tell you this. They're not reading digital, Aaron. What they're doing is they're waiting for these YouTube channels with somebody that is in line with their way of thinking to come on and tell them about the comic books that they read this week and give them a spin on it, how more of this group needs to be writing comics and how unfair this is. And and that's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for the dynamic of the entertainment factor of being told what's in the content of the comic books rather than reading the comic books themselves. There's not as many people as I believe you would like to think going to Comixology and the other digital sites and downloading these comics and reading them. I think they're also pirating them. Yeah, Yeah. real easy to pirate, but I still don't think that that number's up there. I think the number of people that read digital comic books in any format, whether purchasing them or pirating them is no more, and I'm going to be real optimistic on the side of digital comics here, is no more than, say, 20 to 25 percent of the population that goes into the stores and buy the physical format. We get a a different figure 
back and forth when they actually will answer that question. I mean, I've heard Tom Brevoot, but this was within the last 10 years, so it's probably gone up more, say that it's roughly 10%. Uh But it's probably closer to maybe 15 or 20%. Now, those are people that are buying comics. Like I said, I was being optimistic. I was giving them the benefit of the doubt. Better right. to err on the... It could be 15 to 20% now, but that's still not enough to support a comic book industry. Mm-hmm. Now, the people that pirate, I think that's a much higher number. Yeah. Uh, there have been several creators that have said that they found, I don't know, they said that they found, looking at the stats and, or of these pirate sites, that, that people are downloading a buttload of these, these comics. They've said stuff. If all the people that pirated the, this comic bought the comic, then we wouldn't be getting canceled. And that, that's not going to happen. I still don't think so it's think greater that, than 25%. Pirating? Oh, there's nothing they can do about the pirating in the current yeah, but format. I'm but saying that, is there, I mean, do you think that they are more than 20%? No, I, I think that it still makes up about Total. 25%. And I base that on given the stats of the number of visits to the particular websites that do this sort of thing. And when I say this, I'm talking about pre-pandemic. I'm talking about buying levels as they were this time last year. Right. Yeah, I'm not taking anything else into account. Now the entire thing could change and pirating become a big thing. But here's what it comes down to. The reason you're always going to have comic books in some format is that this is research and development for the movie industry now. And it's very, very cheap compared to actual research and development for the movie industry. They've got base designs to go off of. They've got base storylines to go off of. Given how much money actually goes into a movie that is manufactured from start to finish inside one of the big studios now concerning researching this, target marketing this, so, so all that is out of the way with comics. They know who the audience is. They know, uh, you know, they're getting better and better about getting these things right. I still think physical comic books will be around in two or three years. That's if the whole economy is not just... Comp- Here's how this will work. Well, first, that the comic industry is going to have to figure out something as far as their digital output works and how they charge for it and how they deliver it. In time, I think comic books will be treated as almost, and, and they are to an extent because they're, you know, it's a collectible thing, will be treated very similar to the way that we view vinyl records. Yeah, I can see that too. One more thing, and we'll move on to some more news in the comic book and entertainment industry here. As we were talking, Joseph popped up here on my Facebook feed, and Joseph writes in and says... <laughs> You don't have to respond to this. I just need to say Rob Liefeld is an ass hat to someone who understands. Oh my gosh. I wrote back to Joseph because before we started the podcast, I hadn't seen Albert's good friend, Mr. Liefeld, pop up on anything other than last week. He was kind of recanting and him hauling around and saying it, still saying it'd be five years, but that he needs to keep his mouth shut. And yeah, I agree. You do need to keep your mouth shut. But anyway, I asked Joseph, why, what's going on? Joseph says he popped up on Twitter and I almost threw my phone. He's taking credit for Bob Iger putting Deadpool in his Twitter banner. (laughs) And when you look at Bob Iger's Twitter banner, it's got half the Disney princesses. It's got the Fab Five from Disney, that being Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy, and Pluto. It's got, I think it's got Stitch on there somewhere, and it's got the Navi from Avatar. It's got everybody. It's got the Black Panther. It's got Captain Marvel. I think Spider-Man's on there somewhere. And in the corner, it's got Deadpool. 
Rob, on behalf of Joseph and myself, I'm going to take this opportunity to remind you that Iger owns Deadpool. And if Iger wants to put Deadpool in his banner, it's nobody's business but Iger's. Yeah, yeah. Did you see what Rob Liefeld said about Frank Miller? Oh, Lord. No, I don't. He, he better tread carefully there. I think Frank Miller would kick his butt. You want me to do the direct quote of the tweet? Uh, go ahead. Give us the direct quote of what Rob Liefeld said about Frank Miller, creator Frank, of The Dark Knight. Frank Miller's tits <laughs> must be so worn out. So many people sucking off them for decades now. That's what happens when you create the blueprint for modern Batman and Daredevil. Well, Rob, Mr. Liefeld, sir, at least Frank Miller can draw tits <laughs> appropriately. With swastikas on them. <laughs> or without. <laughs> Mostly swastikas. Well, yeah, but he's making a political statement there. Okay, and that ends I the Rob. <laughs> that I ends the it was just some weird fetish thing with him. <laughs> at least they're not, like, outstretched and, and just, you know, Rob can't draw anatomy. There. That ends the Rob Liefeld portion of our show. We're going to move off now. We're going to kick off with uh, some comic book entertainment news. Ruby Rose. Off Batwoman, the TV series. Albert, you weren't jumping up and down about the Batwoman TV series, were you? I didn't watch it. You didn't watch any of it? Not even Crisis? Did I watch the Crisis stuff? I don't remember if I watched the Crisis stuff or not. Well, I feel the same way, except I know for Maybe a fact, I did. Maybe I watched yeah, that. I think we both... I know I did. Uh, Sandra, did you see any of it? Nope. Nope? You haven't seen Batwoman? Uh, I saw the trailers. Okay. Sandra saw the trailers of Batwoman, so weigh in with any... <laughs> Ruby Rose released a statement, and she was very polite and very professional. Uh, it implied that it was, you know, majorly her choice to step away from the role of Batwoman. She thanked everybody. I mean, it was a very professionally well-done statement. There's some talk out there on the internet that while, yeah, she agreed she should step off, that it may have been a more mutual thing, that the showrunners of Batwoman might have maybe have suggested to her that this might be for the best. There are rumors that she's difficult to deal with on the set. She was having uh, some run-ins with other creative talents there and so on and so forth. So she's stepping off. And long story short, there is a second season of Batwoman coming and they are recasting her and uh, recasting her according to who will fit the LGBTQ mold for this character of Batwoman. So Ruby Rose has stepped off of Batwoman, but production continues on it. Now for some really cool news. Who loves Timothy Oliphant? Oh, yes, I was so happy to see that. He's all right. <laughs> I, I like him. I he like is, him. He is fantastic. Deadpool, Justified, yeah. The Crazies. He's, he's, he's fantastic. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, he wasn't in it much, but he was yeah. good when he was in it. I don't know that they're saying exactly who he's playing, but since he's been spotted in Boba Fett's armor... He's going to be playing a character from the Star Wars Aftermath books who's declared himself Sheriff of Tattooing, Cobb Vanth, V-A-N-T-H. And if you haven't read the Aftermath books, they're good reads, and they're in continuity. They're set in continuity, and they take place, I think, about within four months after the Battle of Endor. And the Aftermath books end with the Battle of Jakku. So he's declared himself Sheriff of Tattooing. And given that we know 
that Boba Fett has survived the Sarlacc pit and that they're bringing back the actor that plays the clones and played Jango Fett to reprise the role of Boba Fett, we know that Boba Fett is going to run into him because... No, no, the... Boba, Boba Fett's retired. Oh, is he? Yeah, Boba, no, here's how this is going to work. <laughs> okay. Boba Fett got out the Sarlacc, Sarlacc pit mm-hmm. and was decided he was done. So he sold to he sold the gimmick the Boba, the the Boba Fett bounty hunter gimmick to this guy, and Boba's off just sort of being retired. Yeah, and he's well, gonna and they're gonna use that quote like they're gonna find him, and he's gonna use. I'm gonna be very specific. So there's that quote in in uh, episode two where Django says, "I'm just a simple man trying to make my way in the universe." Yeah, he's gonna use the same exact line when Mandalorian finds him. Like he goes, well, you're Boba Fett, blah. He goes, no, nah, I'm just a simple man trying to make my way in the universe. Well, it's going to be like a real quick. It's going to be a real quick cameo, and that's going to be it. No, 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 no. Well, first off, Vant got the armor from Jawas. I don't care about any of that. Well, it's continuity. Well, nobody cares about that stuff. It's in the box. Oh, wait, also, wait, wait. It's Did in you the have box. to buy a Lego set to figure that out? No, that no actually you, you just, it's it's in the aftermath books. Okay, the armor was worn down and beaten even more. Looked like acid had uh, hit it pretty hard, and he takes what he found of the armor away from the Jawas, and then he turns around and he runs a mining corporation off of Tatooine. He also finds the Sarlacc Keeper starving to death in the middle of the tattooing desert, picks him up and takes him back and shows him that he's found a baby hut and puts him in charge of raising the baby hut. I said Sarlacc Keeper, the Rancor Keeper. Okay. He finds the Rancor Keeper and puts him in charge of raising the baby hut that he found. Vantha's a pretty cool character. Vantha's one of these gunslinger western aspect characters that's really going to fit into the mandalorian as a matter of fact that tells me that that was him at the end of the episode of mandalorian where we were all thinking it was boba fett ah okay it was actually fanth we'll have to see how fett figures back into this though because they didn't just hire him to deliver one line albert sure they did well, I think Timothy Oliphant, with some of the strongest or most popular roles, has been as a Western in Deadwood and in Justified. Yeah. He fits the Mandalorian perfectly. He's going to be awesome. I'm sure it's going to be more than just to save one line. That doesn't... Well, Albert's saying that Django is going to just have one line, that Timothy Oliphant will do more than that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, Tamara Morrison. Yeah, 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 he's, yeah. He's just there as so a simple, like, here's what's happened with Boba Fett, and we're going to move on from it. I don't know. I think it comes down to a showdown. Doesn't I have do. to. I do, I do. But that now that you've got, you see, you've got somebody of Timothy Oliphant's caliber that already brings something to this character of Vant that the majority of the public never knew existed before. But we know a bit about him, given what we know about Timothy Oliphant and the type of characters he's played before. We know about the Mandalorian and who he is because we've spent a full season with him. Everybody knows about Boba Fett. Boba Fett's the whiny little bitch that went screaming to his death after a blind Han Solo accidentally hit him with a stick. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm excited about that. Everything I hear coming out of the Star Wars Disney Plus camp, I, I'm just, I'm down for 
I am really excited for that. For well, I was excited for season two of The Mandalorian, and then hearing Timothy Oliphant was going to join him, I was like, yes! Let's do a couple of quick comic book reviews. Sandra, have you read anything this week? Oh, Lord, no. Well, just chime in if you have an okay. opinion on anything. Albert, I tell you what, you got a whole list there. Pick the top two that you think the audience needs to know about. Well, I really like six DC books. Jimmy Olsen 10 came out. Loved it, yeah. That was great. Matt Fraction and Steve Lieber still on it. Hey, look, previous opinions still stand. It's it's a wonderfully funny book. I thought the, I really liked the line where the where Jimmy Olsen's uh, wife or ex-wife, I guess. I don't. <laughs> she makes a joke about nothing being solar powered on Earth except for Superman and calculators. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was a good line. I thought that was great. Well, the whole thing is outstanding, and now we get to the core of the mystery, who's behind everything. It wasn't that hard of a mystery to solve, but it was it's still pretty interesting. My only problem with Jimmy Olsen is that I've still got a crappy taste from what DC's doing with the comic book shops. For I cannot disconnect the characters and the comic books they put out from their current actions. But Jimmy Olsen's a wonderful book. Very funny. What was your score on him? I gave the writing an art of five, and I guess the dynamic of four. Okay, I gave the writing an art of five, and I went low on the dynamic because of DC's actions. My score was 3.7, but you need to pick up. If you're not reading Jimmy Olsen, you need to swing in here and read Jimmy Olsen. Sandra, you need to read Jimmy Olsen. It will give you a new appreciation for Jimmy Olsen. I will uh, trade weight. There you go. <laughs> Jimmy Olsen, number 10, Matt Fraction, Steve Lieber. Albert, did you read Dr. Afra number one? They released that on digital as a special May the 4th situation. I just oh, got no, I didn't. I didn't read that. I read it. And the writer is Alyssa Wong and the artist is Marika Cresta. We're running into some problems with this reboot. And first and foremost, it's not feeling like Star Wars, like the previous Dr. Afra did, which I loved. I loved the full run of Dr. Aphra. There were some slow spots and all, but it felt like Star Wars. You didn't doubt it was taking place in the Star Wars universe. This problem is amplified by the fact that the robots, the droids, the gear, and the ships don't look like they belong in the Star Wars universe. They just don't. They look like they belong on Space 1999. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not fitting at, and it's detracting from the... It, Star Wars has a certain look to it and a certain feel. This book's not conveying that. Black Kazakhstan, the Wookiee bounty hunter that hangs out with her, every time you see him, it looks like somebody's traced Chewbacca being happy. And Black Kazakhstan is not happy. He does not smile. He does not... He's a very intimidating figure, and he's not coming across... He's coming across as a lovable Wookiee in the, so far as the art's concerned. I'm still with Dr. Afra right now. I'm I'm going to give it several more issues because I'm a Star Wars fan. I like the character of Dr. Afra. I want this to work. But right now, I don't necessarily, unless you're just picking it up because you followed the previous Dr. Afra, this is not a good jumping on point for the Star Wars comic universe. I gave it a 2.3 overall. Basically, yeah, basically writing was, writing was better than the art and dynamic in it. 2.3 on Dr. Afra. Green Lantern Season 2, Number 3 came out. Of course. The writing and dynamic I gave a 4. The art I gave a 3 on. Liam Sharp is still doing the art. Yeah. But it's completely colored up different. Hmm. Like, you can tell it's him when you look at the characters, but the coloring and everything is like a digital type thing. It has a lot more of a 
a heavy metal vibe to it isn't necessarily a good thing. Okay. I did not take a look at that, but now I'm curious about it. But it's the same artist. The same. You can tell it's the same artist when you look at the, the characters' faces. Yeah. But so much of the other rest of the arts is so different, you can't place it that that's him. Do you think it's the colorist or the inker? Well, it's that, but it was done that way on purpose. It was, the way the book looks was was a conscious decision to do it that way. Hmm. Did it fit so, with the story? Uh, it, yeah, the story it fit with the story fine. I just wasn't a fan of it necessarily. Just kind of threw you off. And maybe like if every issue that they've done so far was like this, it would be fine. Yeah. But just have a stark difference. Kind of slap on you this in the issue face. sort of is a different thing. Okay. What did you give the writing and the the art of three writing dynamic of four piece? If you've been enjoying it before, you're still going to enjoy it. And this is a good book. I haven't read this last issue, but I really like Morrison on Green Lantern. Yeah. You read Deceased, Hope at the World's End, issue number I one. did. Tom Taylor's still writing the Deceased issues, and artist Dustin Nguyen on this. And this is one of DC's direct-to-digital books, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. This may be like their old-style digital, where like after they get a few digital in, they'll do a physical issue or something. Like that Maybe what this is, I'm not too sure. Okay. What was your take on this one? I liked it. I mean, it was, it was a nice focus on Jimmy Olsen. Yeah, I think that's all to it. But we're seeing the same things that have happened in the other books. We're just seeing it now through Jimmy's eyes. Yeah. In a situation, I also read Deceased, Unkillables number three, which dealt with Deathstroke and the bad guys saving the kids with Commissioner Gordon and Cassandra Kane. I missed that one. In between the two, Unkillables was an infinitely better book to me. It had almost a what you it kind of did have a touching ending to it they ended it real well and i enjoyed carl mostert's art better than i did dustin's art on the digital one i give deceased unkillables a, a higher rating i give them an overall score of like 3.7 nice three issue read when they put it out in trade deceased i didn't care about as much i like jimmy olsen they did a good job with him but it's everything we've seen before we're just watching jimmy olsen go through it now and i'm I'm now officially tired of the zombies what with an actual plague going around the planet yeah i'm not gonna give it a score but i did read lois lane number 10 (laughs) i wish they really need to take lois away from bendis and rucka oh there is a long list of characters they need to take away from bendis (laughs) Like, they really, I don't think they understand this character at all. Yeah. I think if they're going to do a Lois Lane book, I think a Lois Lane book would be a a good opportunity to find a female independent writer and let her tackle the book because the the way Rucka and Bendis write her, she's practically just an alcoholic. Yeah, she was coming across that way to me, especially with Montoya. Yeah. Uh, before i have i did not read this recent issue because i just i'm a little put out with dc i really am i i hate to keep coming at it like this but what they're doing to comic book shops is completely in, uh, inconsiderate so i did not read as much as i normally would and next week uh, we've got the marvel books coming out we'll grab a few more comics and go from there and see how it goes yeah i agree with you about lois lane i'd much more surely to god there's a person with actual journalism experience out there that would be interested in writing, say, six issues of a Lois Lane story. Yeah. I really believe there would be. Ashley Banfield, for instance. Somebody should approach her and say, hey, look, you ever tried your hand at writing fiction? 
I mean, we know you worked for NBC News. <laughs> that was a mm-hmm. joke there, so we'll just move on. <laughs> but I, I, I would love to see somebody, in all seriousness, I'd love to see somebody like Ashley Banfield, somebody that's actually worked in reporting, has a journalist, write Lois Lane, write a 6 to 12 issue Lois Lane story. Yeah. I'd enjoy that, so I'm in agreement with you. I had read, it wasn't this week, but I did read Tom King's The Omega Man. Did you read that? That's a good book. Did you read his Tom King's Mr. Miracle? Yes. And so that, was a, that was a good book till the ending. Well, I didn't care for Tom King's Mr. Miracle, but I did uh, read The Omega Man, and that was a really kind of odd book. I mean, his vision was an odd book, too, but it was great. I enjoyed Vision a lot, and maybe it's because I, I didn't know these characters. And the thing is, though, I did, I do know the Mr. Miracle book, one of my biggest problems was I like those characters. I have read the Kirby New Gods and Mr. Miracle and Big Barda, and I just didn't, that was just too, I don't want to even say grim, but it was kind of, it, it just was not my cup of tea as far as, and, and I know and love those characters. Omega Man, I did not know any of these characters. I don't know. Do you think it deserves the hype it got? Omega Man? Yeah. Well, it was well-reviewed, but I mean, it wasn't like it was some big seller or anything. No, it almost got canceled. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's a good book, and that to me, mm-hmm. that's about it. Just wanted to get your... What about you, Stan? Did you read The Omega Man? I did not read The Omega Man. I liked Vision. I liked... I, liked, I was okay with Mr. Miracle, too. I understand what Albert says about the ending, and the ending is a little weaker than the overall product, but I enjoyed it. And much more than that. I know we hit Tom King a lot during his run on Batman. That was for Batman, but... Yeah, but he really worked hard at it. It was hard not to. Yeah. Because he he was not good on Batman, by and large. Yeah, I really, truly loved Vision, and I liked Mr. Miracle. I'll have to think about it more, about why I didn't like it so much. Maybe that would be a realistic take on what Scott Free went through. But that's not how Scott Free has been portrayed. Traditionally. Traditionally. But he's he's open up enough that you don't want him emulating other characters that have tread the same path before. And you want to bring something different to him. There's a number of characters that you've got room to play with. Aquaman has been one of them over the years for the last five decades that nobody has really done a definitive situation with him outside of Peter David. The same thing is true of Mr. Miracle. You've got a dynamic there. You've got a setup there and his connection and everything. But where his personality comes from, depending on who's writing him, he's anywhere from Blue Beetle to just not even being there at all. Just being a character in a suit in his own book in some cases. Mm -hmm. I was okay with him playing with him a little more. The ending was not as good as the overall read, but it didn't run it for me like it did Albert. I will have to say that the the art played a role in it too, in the way he wrote it, where it was very Bendis. When Bendis writes something, it's nothing but like panel after panel. I don't want to say talking heads, but... I can see that. He was a little bit more verbose than he normally is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind verbose because like... I love those old 70s and 60s comics where they have like captions and you get to read what is people's heads and everything. 
and he used the the nine panel grid a lot, but it was the same panel over and over again with maybe one or two slight yeah. alterations, and I didn't think that was very... No, I'm with you on that. I did notice that, but I think he was doing it for a reason as well. Well, he was, he was, but it's not something... I think that contributed to my not liking Mr. Miracle as much. But Omega Man was really interesting. I just wish that they had kept the same artist. There was like a couple issues that they didn't have the same artist, but it also brings up the question of if all that stuff was going on... And, you know, the political questions that were in Omega Man, like the trade-off of, well, really, the whole galaxy is going to go along with this, including Superman and the Green Lanterns and everything. And that was part of the purpose of the book. It's hard writing in that universe to begin with because, and I've said this in the past, before New 52, as much as I love the Justice Society of America... At the same time, the Justice League w book was doing real well also. As much as I love both of those books, how in the hell does anybody get away with jaywalking on that earth? <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've got just the number of speedsters by themselves, let alone Superman, Shazam, Mr. Terrific, Batman. How does anybody get away with anything ever? Sometimes you've got to give the writers and creators a little leeway in the DC universe. You can clearly see how people get away with things in the Marvel universe. The DC universe gets away with stuff because they keep rebooting so often. I mean, like, I'll read a trade in the DC universe and just, even with characters that I don't know about, because their continuity is not as tight. Yeah. I loved it. Well, you're saying that. I love Doomsday Clock, and when it comes out in trade, you need to read it. Okay, I will. Before we move on and discuss our movies of the week, Highlander and Highlander 2. And uh, High did you watch And High Rise. <laughs> High Rise? You, yes. You didn't watch High Rise? What's High Rise? <laughs> I, I texted you. It had Tom Hiddleston in it. Oh, I guess I didn't. I guess I just saw the word high. I'm just like, yeah, Highlander. Highlander. Right. Highlander 1, Highlander 2, High Rock. My bad. I'm sorry. It's okay. My wife made me watch it, and I felt obligated to make the two of you watch it. Uh, yeah. So often I get these texts, and then I think, I want that two hours of my life back, Stan. <laughs> Well, I am going to throw this at you. It was not on the list or anything, but I did get somebody that listens to the program and is related to me asking me about this. Scoob is worth the $25 to own. No, it's not. No, it's not. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Did you both watch it? No, no. I'm not going to spend 25 bucks on it. It really is. I thoroughly enjoyed it. This was a really, if you're a Scooby-Doo fan and you're in quarantine with your kids, they want something to watch. It's $19 to rent for, I think, 72 hours. I'm not sure. I went ahead and spent five extra bucks and just bought it and figured if it was bad, I can kick myself over it and lament that I don't do this again in the future. I enjoyed it. I laughed my ass off. It was touching. It was cute. It was funny. They utilized several Hanna-Barbera characters. Marky Mark is the Blue Falcon in this. The Blue Falcon. Sandra, do not. Play Did like you, you not know, know who the Blue Falcon is? The Blue Falcon and Dino Mutt are. Oh, okay. Now, the one thing is, is that Dino Mutt is much, well, he's competent. Dino Mutt is the one that has it together in this. The Blue Falcon is the son of the original Blue Falcon. 
and he's having troubles adjusting to the role of a Blue Falcon sort of run alongside Shaggy's coming of age situation. But uh, you see how Scooby and Shaggy met up the first time? It was really cute. I very much enjoyed it. Denise laughed through it. I laughed through it. You've got Blue Falcon, Dynamud in it. You've got Captain Caveman in it. It's littered with Hanna-Barbera references throughout it. The bad guy is Dick Dastardly. Muttley's in it. I, you know, is I thought Hong it was, Kong Fooey in it? Hong Kong Fooey is referenced, huh. but nothing else. Well, I I'm not going to watch it. And then at the end of it, during the credits, you see the Blue Falcon, who I believe is now funding Mystery Incorporated, but you see him putting together a super team of Adam Ant. Somehow Jabberjaws is there. I'm not sure how. But uh, also Johnny Quest, Quest Enterprises, is in the final credits and such. So it was really enjoyable. It was a lot of fun, especially if you're a Scooby-Doo or Hanna-Barbera fan, which I am. Very much enjoyed it. Marky Mark, Blue Falcon. Uh, I thought Shaggy's uncle funded Mr. This is a little bit, uh, this is a little bit of a different take. Hmm. We didn't get into Shaggy's extended family and all. Because the way they play off this is it's actually Shaggy that is the main character in this. Scooby's great. Everything's great in it. Love the new Dynamut. He was voiced by Ken Jeong. Community and what were the three movies? The Hangover. Oh, yeah. Who's 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 he voicing? Uh, Dynamut. And it's not a silly voice. Oh, weird. Yeah, Dynamut's completely competent in this. It's Blue Falcon that's problematic. The art in it is very good. It's not offensive at all. They've got a wonderful voice cast in it. If you got kids especially, or if you're just a Scooby-Doo fan, I think it's worth the $25 to have on streaming. Now, both of you go out, buy it, and we'll, you know, watch it, and we'll no, talk no. about it at great length. No! <laughs> that's our cutest canoe! Next week, we're going to talk about Black Hole. Oh, no. Are we watching Black Hole? Yeah, buddy. I'm down for it because I've already watched it. So. <laughs> have to watch it again. If I have to watch Highlander 2 again for this. Oh, my God. You got to oh. watch Black Hole. That's the uh, old Disney one, right? Yeah. Okay. With Max Million. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, it was, it was an interesting movie. Uh, I'm going to start making my lists. <laughs> well, we wish you would participate in this. <laughs> I watch these shows. I participate, but I have not suggested anything. Although I did vote for Highlander, so. There you go. Yep, mm -hmm. Highlander. I do want to start the Highlander conversation off by saying we could have had Kurt Russell as Highlander. What? Yeah. As usual, when any movie's in development, and apparently this movie went into development when somebody wrote it as his thesis for film school and sold it for like $20,000. Highlander or Highlander 2? Highlander. Okay, Highlander, right. the first one. You get this long list of names that were considered for it, and as always, some of these people may not have even known they were considered for it, <laughs> but Kurt Russell did know. They made a push for Kurt Russell, and Goldie Hawn told him not to take it and encouraged him to take Big Trouble in Little China instead. Oh, thank I would have God. Really? Oh this my would have God. been so much better with Kurt Russell. No. Are you kidding? Big Trouble in Little China is a classic because of Kurt Russell. Well, it is, but there's nothing to say he couldn't have done this too. Is he Scottish? L Lambert's not Scottish. I know, Lambert but could... at least Lambert's European. Albert, Albert, get ready. Lambert could barely speak English during filming. They had all sorts of dialogue coaches helping him. Because he's French. <laughs> Go ahead with your line, Albert. 
Where's he originally from? <laughs> I'm sorry, Lambert. <laughs> you ruined Stan's bit, Sandy. <laughs> He's originally from Long Island. <laughs> He's not from Long Island. Yes, ma'am. Who? He was, Lambert was born on Long Island. Well, then he immediately went to France. Yes, he did. But now that we've trashed that bit that I had written out and contacted <laughs> out. <laughs> but yeah, he's originally, he was born in Long Island. And yes, you're right. He was raised in France. Uh, but they had several dialogue coaches helping him and everything. But I, I would have much preferred to see Kurt Russell. Uh, watching Highlander again after all these years in 1989... I mean, the movie came out in 1985. I think I saw it around 1988 or 1989. When I saw it, I was like, oh, this is cool. This is this is awesome. But I was also a teenager, and I watched it now, and it just did not stack up to my memories. But I will say this. Apparently, I watched the re-edited version of the original Highlander, and they included... A, well, I always had a question about his assistant at the oh. antique shop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was she a former lover? What? And we never saw that. But in this version that I saw in Highlander, they included a deleted scene in it, which worked perfectly, where we see him rescue her from the Nazis. Right. I don't ever remember seeing this movie without that scene in there. Well, you see, I have never seen this movie with that scene because oh. I thought, and, it, and also the, the scene at the piece. zoo. I never saw the movie with the scene at the zoo, which explains how, what's his name, Kruger? Krugen? The Kurgan? Kurgan? Yeah, the Kurgan. How the Kurgan knew where the police officer, that forensic lady, lived. What scene in the zoo? There's a scene at the zoo where McLeod is telling Brenda, after they've had sex, how he can't really get with another woman because of his first wife. And, yeah, it just doesn't work out for his type because he's immortal. And they're looking at animals in the zoo. And if you watch in the background, the Kurgan is following them through the zoo. Was that on the Amazon Prime version? Yeah, that was on the Amazon Prime version. I don't remember that scene. Yeah. And, well, you see, beforehand, he just shows up at her apartment and kidnaps her. Mm -hmm. There was a plot hole there. How did he know? And this shows how he knew. He was tracking McLeod, and he saw McLeod go into the zoo with her, and he kind of followed him around, and then right at the last second, McLeod senses him, looks around, and he's gone. There's just a number of things in this Wait, movie. That... So that's a plot hole, but him finding Ramirez in the, the tower with the Highlander's first wife out of the blue is that, not that's a actually hole? That's actually his second wife. Heather is his second wife. His first wife is the one that runs him out of town. Yeah, she's the one that turned on him. Yeah, but she yeah. he wasn't married to her. Yes, yeah. In the script, he was, yeah. I thought they were just sleeping together. She wasn't his wife. She didn't know. I didn't strike it that she no. was his wife. Well, back, no, then, no, when you, back says, then, when you slept with somebody, you were married to him. No, you weren't. He actually says Heather's his first wife. When he, talks just, to, he, tells, when he tells, oh my gosh, what is that woman's name? The Heather Heather is the, Heather's the one he's in love wife. with, his, his second wife. No, that's his first wife. According to the script, it's the second one. Well, that might well, be such a script. script. I mean, what was it? What they shot? He told Brenda that Heather was his first wife. Which little nugget here, which I'm sure some people know, Heather, the, the actress that plays Heather, 
in both Highlander 1 and Highlander Highlander 2. Anyway, she she reprises her role in one of these things. She is also in the BBC series Poldark and totally unrecognizable from Heather. Of course, she's older, but she's also wider. And she plays... You say wider or wider? Wider. Wider. Wide, wide. I thought she said wider too. No, she's not wider. How How does one get wider? With Clorox? (laughs) She uses that skin whitening thing. No, wider. Neither of you watch Poldark, do you? I've never heard of it until you mentioned it. What is it? Spell it? What's it in? P-O-L-D-A-R-K. What does that even mean? That's a guy's name. Poldark is a name. Are, are you sure it's not? Are you sure it's not like a goth-like Polish superhero? <laughs> God, no! It's it is not. I, Poldark. Now, somebody give me a light bulb. <laughs> it's short. No, it's short for Poland after dark. It's Cornish. Hey, I'd tune into that. <laughs> oh Lord. Anyway, for people that like Highlander and like Poldark, see if you can find Heather in that show. Now I've got a question for both of you. Uh, you're both from two different generations, uh, and I'm more towards Sandra's generation. But my question is this. Like I said, I remember between, say, 18 and 22 thinking, oh, this movie was awesome. Now I'm watching it in my 40s, and I'm thinking, I don't understand at all how this movie had the legs that it did. Because this is a, this movie has put new words into the lexicon, like the quickening. People have adapted that. Art Bell, for one, has adapted, before he passed away during his radio show, used that term. And the quickening, actually, it was a term beforehand, and I think it meant I think it meant something having to do with a fetus showing life for the first time or something along those lines. I read that somewhere while I was reading up on the movie. But it's put new words into the lexicon. That phrase, you know, there can be only one. It's still a heavy part of pop culture. And watching this movie again, I just don't think it deserved it. The attention that it got. Oh my gosh. I have to disagree with you completely. Well, that that's fine. And that's what I'm asking. Tell me what about this movie makes it worthy to have all the attention that it still gets. It's a fantastic movie. Is it? Let me it tell you It needs more social commentary. Oh, my God. Especially when you learn you could have had Kurt Russell in the lead role. Oh, my God. Kurt Russell would have ruined this movie. He's well, not even European. So and what? He, he is an actor. <laughs> so is Christopher Lambert. Barely. He, I, he, I don't. Barely. Oh my gosh. They were perfect. This was a perfectly cast movie. Every role. Sean Connery is an Egyptian that has lived in Spain and he's talking like an Irishman. He has a Japanese sword. That's right. He has a Japanese sword. Yeah, now, okay. Look, I can buy buy the Japanese sword story. That's not a problem for me. You're an immortal. You've fallen in love with a Japanese princess. Her father makes you so. Okay, I buy that. Not a problem. But that accent, and you know, they had as many dialogue coaches working with him as they did Lambert. Who's going to. I am sorry. Anybody that hires a dialogue coach for Sean Connery is just wasting their money because Sean Connery is going to talk like Sean Connery. Well, there are so many other people up for uh, the role of Ramirez, and, and you know, Ooh, there's chemistry. Ooh. The guy that I always wanted to play Sabretooth, the hitchhiker. Rutger Hauer? Blade Runner. Rutger Hauer? Yeah. No. 
Yeah, there were other names up for the role of Ramirez, and I love Sean Connery. I really and truly do, but even when I was younger and he showed up and he said he's a Egyptian that lives in Spain or and he's dressed as a Spaniard, he talks like, you said Scottish? Yes, he's Scottish. Well, I know the film takes place in the fictional land of Scotland, but I, I always thought Sean Connery was Irish. Oh my God, no. Sean Connery is Scottish. But no, no, Scotland is like Wakanda. It's not a real thing. Oh, Lord have mercy. Why are we even talking? <laughs> and technically, Ramirez is from the planet Zeist. <laughs> yeah. Right, Why did he have not, Let us not get into that yet until we just finish this business about whether or not Highlander is a great <laughs> classic movie. Neither of them had a Zeist in <laughs> Oh, Lord. Rosanna Arquette, Jennifer Beals, and Tanya Roberts were considered for the role of Brenda. Tanya Roberts? Yeah, Tanya Roberts. We talked about her last week. Yes, we did. That would have been horrible. Like I said, I love Sean Connery, but I'm I'm watching this again, and this it just didn't strike me anywhere near like it. The only one in this entire movie that I was damn is uh, Kurgan. Is Clancy his Kurgan. Clancy Graham. I mean, he is dead on that character. And I completely buy into it. But the majority of the time I'm watching it uh, the other night, I'm sitting there thinking, why are you still wearing that outfit, Sean? <laughs> Did you not bring a change of clothes? <laughs> Lambert is, what's the word I'm looking for here? He's a cult of personality. He's you know, a bad actor? He's playing himself. And that's fine. And somehow this magically worked. But what was it that appealed to both of you to to think, oh, this is a great movie. I think to me, it was the swords and the concept. I just thought it was cool. Even the concept in the first movie, they don't explain any of it. No, like no. the whole thing about holy ground, that's never explained. No, no, no. We define what holy ground is. Graveyards, churches, mosques, synagogues. We never learn any of this stuff, but that's okay because that lends to the mystique of the whole thing. This was supposed to be just a one-shot movie. Right. This yeah. was never supposed to turn into what it turned into. This had a beginning, middle, and end right there. And right, because he won the prize, and there, he was the only one left, so that should have been the end. Yeah, and the demons were dancing around him. That was a little off-putting, but those were supposed to be the spirits of all the, the past immortals yeah, yeah. Uh, that were being freed up. And... All right, I'll tell you what was cool about this movie. Okay. The shoulder now... pads. <laughs> we're talking about the first movie. Dude, look at that coat he's wearing. They've got like... The trench like, coat. The trench football, coat. Got football-level shoulder pads in it. With the uh, Highlander pocket, so you can hide your sword no matter what and still look like... It's invisible. And he's wearing the white sneakers. Yeah. For some reason, that works. Yeah, of course it works. First of all, let's talk about the director. He had a very strong, stylish vision. He used to shoot music videos when they had such a thing as music videos. For MTV. And he did, I remember it being visually interesting and a lot of visual tricks that he used, you know, shooting things in mirrors, shooting things in the glasses, the transitions between the past and the present. The segues were cool. Yeah, I did segues. notice that again. I thought, yeah. yeah, and you're right about the cinematography. Uh, yeah. The director, Russell Mulcahy, yeah, he really brought something to it. He did. He really did. And and I actually watched four of these things, all four episodes. I did not get to watch The Source, which is the fifth one, but I watched the fourth one. And for some reason, I watched them backwards. So I watched 
Highlander 4, then Highlander 3, then Highlander 2, and then Highlander. Highlander stands out, even though Highlander 2 was also directed by Russell Mulcahy. Highlander, the first Highlander movie, is like a Hollywood production compared to the Roger Corman versions that come later. Visually, it was amazing. The story had a sense of humor. Okay, so that goes back to the writer, Gregory Wyden. I don't think he wrote the other ones. He also wrote... You said Wyden? Gregory Wyden. Yeah, I think they give him credit on the second one just for... For the characters. Just for characters, not the actual plot. But he also wrote Backdraft, and he wrote... He created uh, The Prophecy, which is another kind of weird fantasy movie... I, I hate to use classic there, but... Another one that spawned a, a you, whole genre. You um, you know who was in Backdraft? Kurt Russell. Yeah. <laughs> one of the other bald ones. Yes. Kurt Russell would have been horrible in this movie. If this movie was... I, you cannot convince me of that. I don't know. Him swinging a samurai sword around... Oh, I don't if know. it kept him out of big what trouble, was... little China, then that alone would have been a reason. I'm, I'm with you on that. Of the two, big trouble with little China was it? But I don't know. I, he could have done both. I mean, what did it take to shoot this? Three weeks? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Legitimately, I was more disappointed with the first one than I actually thought I'd be sitting down to watch it again. I was excited to sit down and watch it again, but it, it seemed to keep tripping over itself. It, I got the sensation Christopher Lambert was not taking this anywhere near seriously. The only thing I will say about Christopher Lambert's performance in Highlander, he was not at all comfortable as a sword fighter. <laughs> he was very, I find it hard to believe that this is going to be the one surviving sword fighter because he was very stiff. He clearly... He hurt himself a lot and he hurt a couple of others. He hurt Ironside in the filming of two. Lambert was insisting on using the actual broadswords. Then after that... Yeah, he just was not... He didn't have the athletic skill for this to be running around with these swords. Uh, It's cool that he does not look like the hero. He's not who you would assume to be the hero if you were looking at a lineup of individuals. I think that was cool, and I think that actually worked for him through this. But by the time we get to the main battle between him and Kurgan, this is a real serious situation, and he just got the crap knocked out of him, and the only thing that saves him is when Brenda hits Kurgan over the head with something. Kurgan turns and swings the sword at her, and he, of course, blocks it. And then he turns his head, full body, and looks at her and says, What took you so long? mother put your attention on that guy in front of you kurgan obviously has a crippling drug problem in this movie (laughs) crippling drug problem what makes you say that well i mean if you think about it if you're immortal and and nothing's going to kill you at some point you're not even eating food you're just shoving chemicals down your throat or in your veins or up your nose or whatever He obviously was, but I don't think everybody else was. I don't get the impression that he had a drug problem. Besides that, it's the same thing with Wolverine and the healing factor. They show us that they have healing factors. Just like Wolverine, dear Lord, it'd take a semi-truck full of Budweiser to even give him a buzz. It's the same thing with this. Their systems burn through it too quick, recognize it as poison and such. Again, we go back to that. There's a whole lot that's not explained. I'm fine with all that not being explained. If it had stopped with this first movie, it adds an air of mystery to it. 
that, you know, maybe we can come back and explore with different characters or in a prequel, which would have been the sensible thing to do in Highlander 2 instead of putting them on the planet Zeist. What version of it did y'all watch? Because the version of it I watched changed it. It was the director's cut version where it changed from being the planet Zeist to it was in Earth's forgotten history, which was yeah, highly technologically advanced. It was technically the past. They yeah. had Ironside redub a part of it where it says, like, he's off camera, but he goes, bring him back to the past. So yeah. the version on Amazon Prime is... Director's a, cut. Yeah, it's from 04. Yeah. It's still technically the Renegade cut. Mm-hmm. They do change up some of the special effects, but it's pretty much still the Renegade cut, I think. And Sandra, you saw the same one, Highlander 2? What was supposed to be the director's cut difference? They were saying that we're sending them to the past or the future. Yeah, that, the that's future. the director's cut. Okay, okay, here's the difference. In your version, did you watch, was the shield above the earth, was that a bluish color? Yes. And that's from 04. The old yep. versions are just like red or something like that. Uh-oh. Yeah, it was real annoying red. And did you notice, who loaned them the Gotham City set? I was going mean... to say that that was another thing that I thought was, was very uh, interesting. And I put that down to Russell McKay's vision. This came out after... Yeah, this came out. The whole reason Highlander 2, The Quickening, exists is because of Batman in 1989. As soon as Batman made the rounds, people were dashing to get doable superhero movies. This movie, Highlander 2, came out in 1991. I think Batman Returns came out in 1991 also. Well, the big pyramid building is almost straight from Blade Runner. There is a lot of borrowing... Yes. From the, yeah, from the design and everything that was going on in it. That was a bad movie. Highlander 2 was a straight-up bad movie. While I didn't enjoy Highlander as much as I used to, Highlander 2 was just horrible. We brought Sean Connery back into it, what, to stop a ceiling fan? I mean, that the, was the extent of his character's the best, return. The best part, the only good part of this movie is when Sean Connery is on that airplane. I don't even think that was good. And that was weird, too, them showing planes crashing on the airplane. I thought that was funny. I actually thought that was funny. It's funny when they do it in the movie Airplane. In the movie Highlander 2, it takes away. It knocks you out of it. Knocks you out of what you're watching. And the whole, there was a lot of um, dick and fart jokes that Connery was making that kind of knocked you out of it, too. Well, like his whole fish out of water thing where he didn't know what anything was. Confusing, but it just didn't seem to, to fit. I mean, I liked the scene where he was getting new clothes, but it just didn't seem to really fit with the rest of the movie. That scene where he's getting new clothes felt like a less funny scene from European Vacation with Chevy Chase where they go to get new clothes for themselves. That's exactly what that felt yeah. like to me. Yeah. It was almost shot for shot, minus the kids and the wife, what they were doing, you know, the measuring of the pants and yada yada, every stale joke that was in. But you see, this is a movie that nobody liked when it came out. Mulcahy disliked the movie so much that he wanted to have them put the director as Alan Smithy which is a, a name that when the directors completely and totally disagree with the final cut of the movie mm-hmm. or do not want to be associated, they put that name in there. But the contract, his contract wouldn't permit it. What did he not like about the movie? Uh, everything. I mean, well, he, he went back the whole thing. He, he went back and he did two different cuts of it, You know, one of which we watched on Amazon, and it wasn't any better. Yeah. He got up a 
according to IMDb, he got up and walked out of the premiere after 15 minutes. I understand that the insurance company, I think in, not Argentina, maybe it was Argentina, whatever country the insurance company was based in, that country was experiencing mega financial problems at the time, hyperinflation, and the insurance company actually stepped in started rewriting the script to what they thought people would go to see and overriding Mulcahy on a bunch of stuff. But I still can't think it was a great... Why would you not do a movie set in between uh, Ramirez's death and the fight with the Kurgan? Well, who came up with the idea of a different planet? I think that was Mulcahy. See, like if they would have done a prequel, they should have done a prequel where Kurgan is just someone that he keeps running into. He's a Nazi during World War II or something like that. Yeah, that would have been interesting. But they went to Clancy Brown with the script and said, we want you to come back and shoot a couple of scenes, basically make a cameo showing that you existed on the planet Zeiss. And he said, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) He turned them down. Yeah, he he was like, no, I don't believe I will. Lambert came back on because they agreed that they would write Sean Connery back into the script. And Sean Connery and Lambert have a bromance going on. Still supposed to be really close friends to this day. And they don't I, use the, the stinking song from uh, Queen. Queen. They don't. They use it, but they only use like an instrumental of it. He plays it on a jukebox in a bar. He plays one of the songs on it. But there was a lot of problems with the. You notice that the Queen soundtrack on the first one. This was another one of my issues with the first one when I rewatched it. It's not as in sync with the movie as the Queen soundtrack to Flash Gordon is, where Queen got to do all the music. Yeah, I think they would have been better off letting Queen do all the music in this. Queen, the different members pick different scenes that they were only contracted to write one song for the movie and when they saw the rough cut of the movie they said no we want to do more than that and so each member of queen wrote different songs for different parts of this movie uh, of the original highlander and that's why it feels so scattered when with the music in the first one yeah. but yeah when you get to the second one they were basically just trying to come up with something that could pull in the cash that Batman did and push Sean Connery's name really hard. Whatever they used in the movie of Queen, it was because they already uh, had the rights to it. Some of the well, other I, stuff they'd have to renegotiate I, the rights to. That's the other thing that is fantastic about the, the first movie is that Queen soundtrack. I mean, Who Wants to Live Forever and It's a Kind of Magic, Princes of the Universe. I mean, those are classic. I like Princes of the Universe, and I love Who Wants to Live Forever, but Mm -hmm. it's a kind of magic never. That line was always, because they never used it in the movie version that I saw, that line was used in the cutscene set during World War II. No, it's also used, he also tells her that when when he leaves in the elevator. Oh, yeah. It's that line, yeah, yeah. It's a kind of magic. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's a kind of magic. I'm Connor McLeod of the Clown McLeod. I've lived for a thousand years and I am a murderer. What? <laughs> Could you do that without talking through your nose? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I am a miracle. <laughs> what accent is that one, Lambert? <laughs> uh, it's so terrible. He's wonderful in that role. Well, yeah, How did he accumulate to... hundreds of millions of dollars worth of antiquities? I'm sure you can do it. Didn't you see the movie Brewster's Millions? That's the movie where Richard Pryor <laughs> could speak and you could understand it. <laughs> Neither he nor John Candy needed subtitles, and John Candy was from Canada. 
See, to me, Highlander 2 is like, it was almost like a Joel Schumacher Batman movie. Complete, well, with, those hor- complete with those yeah. horrible bad guy outfits. Yeah. Where they're I, like birds or something. I was getting a flashback to the uh, Clooney Batman movie. Yeah, it's very hokey. Very well, they stylistic. Had, they had to change those things that the bird guys were riding on because Back to the Future came out while they were filming, and they had to completely change the design of what the bird guys were riding on, because it looked too much like the hoverboard. I was wondering about the filming of those, because, you know, a lot of these stunts were, I mean, not stunts, a lot of the special effects were done in real life. Yeah, everything that you see with them flying around in that scene in the alleyway, they're cords, they're girded. uh, Yeah, it's all wire work. They brought in the guys from the first two Supermans to Superman one and two mm-hmm. to uh, orchestrate that. I thought that was a pretty well done scene. Lambert looked like he was actually having fun on the uh, oh, his he was. craft. Yeah. yeah. According to Lambert, that was a fun scene to shoot. And the only part of it that looks hokey is when the last bird person died. He's yeah. just kind of. He just sort of goes slow and stops. Yeah, standing in air and then hits the wall. Yeah, that looked weird. But the rest of it, the rest of that scene, the orchestration and everything, that that looked very well for that movie. The train scene with Ironside. Ironside was quoted as saying, none of us wanted to do this film after we read the initial script. We were all in this for the money. You could completely tell it. He said, but at one point, I decided I was going to be the most memorable thing about this film. And (laughs) when I was watching Highlander 2, all he came off as doing was another Jack Nicholson Joker impersonation. He knew all the colloquialisms. He knew all the slang and everything from this era, whether he was a space alien or whether he was from the distant past, he knew the slang and the smart-ass comments to make at the appropriate time in the present era, or in the year 2024, which is when Highlander 2, The Quickening, is set. And that train scene was stupid. The train that train's going ridiculous. like 700 miles per hour and barely crashes through a wall. Yeah, people's eyes are popping out of their socket. That train should have turned that wall into dust, or the train should have turned into dust when it impacted at one of the two. It was just corny and goofy, and on top of everything else, you've got Dr. Cox from Scrubs in there, and he clearly does not know what the hell he's doing at any given time. No, but him from that era would make a good Norman Osborn. Oh, I think he would have, too. I was thinking oh, that he myself. He would have been fantastic as Norman Osborn. He's yeah. got the look and everything. Character-wise, he's a little on the weak side once Ironside shows up. But he would have made a great Norman Osborn. John C. McGinley from Platoon and Scrubs and uh, what am I thinking with Charlie Sheen? Wall Street. He said that he was doing a Orson Welles impersonation during this. And that he probably shouldn't have because that did not turn out to be the right choice. Let me make you feel a little bit better about it. I couldn't tell you were doing a Orson Welles impersonation. I would have been completely content had we never heard Highlander again and we just had the one movie. And the TV show. Well, you see, you go to the TV show just like Denise goes to the TV show. I don't like that show. Look at Duncan. I don't like that show at all. Really? Look, didn't one of the movies they had Duncan kill Connor? Uh, Yeah, in the last movie, yeah. What a stupid... I don't think that was the last movie. 
That's the next to the last movie. No, they made some horrible, horrible one after that. That's that's, that's even worse than part two. I haven't seen... Wow, I can't believe that. I'm glad I completely bailed on that. So, we're all in agreement. Well, no, we're not in agreement. I don't like Highlander. I don't think it's worth your time anymore. I think if you enjoyed this movie in high school, it's not the movie you remember. The original one is. And definitely, Highlander 2 is not even a good enough movie for Mystery Science Theater to make fun of. I don't know what happened with Highlander 2. I guess what happened in Highlander 2 was that they wanted the story to progress forward instead of going back and doing a prequel. And the only way to make it go forward was to come up with all this crap to explain. Highlander 3 was a pretty just normal movie. Highlander 3 was almost a rehash of the first movie. Yeah, they just did it where the bad guy and his cronies were trapped forever or something. Yeah. Yeah. In in a cave-in. Yeah. And Mario Peebles, who played the main bad guy, was basically a knockoff of the Kurrigan. Right down to all the tongue flicking and all that other nonsense and kidnapping his kid. And I believe he also took him on a car trip similar to the one that the Kurrigan took Brenda on. And it didn't have the visual flair that Russell Mulcahy brought to the first one. And the second one, even. Uh, Tried to get into the TV series with Duncan McLeod. And you you could tell that they hired this actor because, first off, women were going to go crazy over him. Secondly, he looked like a young Sean Connery. Yes, he did. Yeah, but he fit that Highlander situation there, and they slapped him in there. It was not a bad series. I saw several episodes. It's just not something I followed, and I liked it well enough that I went to see the movie at the theater where he killed Connor. There were several things in there I definitely disagree with and killing connor was one of them i'm going to throw this in and then we'll move on we've said before several people always get associated with oh they were considered for this role they were considered for that role hulk hogan you can find it on the internet hulk hogan has said several times that he was offered the role of connor mcleod yeah, and he Kirk turned Hogan it down. Says, well, all them old wrestler carnies say a whole bunch of stuff. He turned think, it down because he wanted to concentrate on his wrestling career. I think he was confused as to he was offered a part in Highlander because no. that whole wrestling opening scene. He's not Remember? confused. <laughs> he knows what he's saying. No, he is absolutely Look, I, I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you, Sandra. She, he's... <laughs> I'm Connor McLeod. Well, problem, no, but see, the problem with that would be that Kurgan would not be a threatening villain. No, not at all. Now, when you would see old pictures of Hogan, he'd always be against someone like Andre or someone bigger than him. Yeah. Because that's like his sort of gimmick. But Hogan was a huge dude back then. Yeah, Hogan. Physically, one of he Hogan's, was a big-ass dude. Yeah, one of Hogan's arms made up my entire torso. I mean, damn. This man was huge. But yeah, he really does. He used to go around telling people he was offered the role of Connor McLeod. Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. Hulk Hogan or Kurt Russell, Sandra? (laughs) Neither of those guys. I'm telling you, that first movie, like I said, when I watched that first movie again, and it's been a couple years since I've seen it, I felt much like I was in the movie theater, like, wow, this was a really cool movie. This was a good movie. I enjoyed that movie. And yeah... Okay, so casting a French guy as a Scottish Highlander doesn't quite oh, make a lot of sense. I didn't care about that. That was fine. And casting the actual Scottish guy as an Egyptian guy, pretending to be a Spanish guy, that was another whole leap. But 
but it all worked. I mean, it was a fantastical thing. The script had humor in it. There was chemistry with all of the the characters. Oh my gosh! And scenes and lines that were live in infamy or or notoriety. How do you spell incompetent? Or what does incompetent mean? What does baffled mean? Do you remember that scene? Yes. Oh, yeah, Lord. and and that's it. It's part of the lexicon. It it's got this place. I mean, there's even a cult. There's chapters of the cult for Highlander here in Alabama that is just way out of hand. There's an entire church of the Highlander here. Oh, you're probably and because they go out in the woods and have sword fights and cut each other's heads off. <laughs> if only. <laughs> But yeah, we have the Church of the Highlander here. And yeah, and like I said, Highlander also made people believe there was an actual Scotland, just like Black Panther made people believe there was a Wakanda. I watched this movie again. I thought, really? Really? You had those sorts of legs. You had those sorts of... It's not like it was Star Wars. I was a little disappointed with it. I thought I was going to enjoy it again the same way I did when I was younger. And I didn't. Well, I'm the opposite. I enjoyed it just as much. I won't say exactly as much because there's nothing like the first time you watch something. Multiple times you watch something, then you get a different feeling. Like the first time you watch something, it's usually you're blown away by the uniqueness or whatever it is that you enjoy about it. And then the multiple times you watch something, then it's also, there's a nostalgia aspect to it. And, uh, oh, oh, this is the line or this is the scene. So I loved it when I saw it in the movie theater. I loved it every time I watch it. It's just, to me, it's, it's not a perfect movie, but it's a very entertaining movie with a very engaging yeah. cast and a visually unique style, which you lose track of that now. Because a lot of these camera moves and the the way he shot this have been repeated. So, no, he did a wonderful job with yeah. shooting the movie. I don't I don't argue that. I give it this: the story still lends itself to a wonderful mythology. Yes. Uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily mind it being remade and rebooted, oh, so long as that Kurt, was in the Kurt right. Russell's, as Ramirez. Well, Kurt Russell's too old now. Well, and besides that, I think he's working on Santa Claus. But tell me this, Sandra, just reassure me, you're not one of those people that believe in the Scotland, are you? I've visited Scotland, so yes, I do okay. <laughs> Well, you know you can visit the Shire from the Hobbit, but it ain't real. Uh... Yeah, that's exactly right, Sandra. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I Sandra... A mo- Let me put it this way. I did not visit a movie set. I stayed at two different locations of the University of Edinburgh. Those are just hotels where people role play. Yeah, I mean, this is a scam. This was a <laughs> dorm. This was a dorm. Now, I, can, I can go to Black Spire Outpost at Disney World and <laughs> pretend I'm in that world, but... <laughs> I got a sequel for Highlander. Okay. Oh, God. That's better than Highlander 2. What is that? You know, he's got all this knowledge and stuff, and he was going to go help the human race, all right? Oh, yeah, by saving us from the ozone layer. Yeah. That big hole that we was always going to die from back when uh-huh. I was a kid. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so he goes off, and he ends up getting talking to these scientists and business people. Even though he's no longer immortal, he still has, like, antibodies and stuff like that in him and whatnot. Uh-huh. So he's going to, and they don't tell him what all the diseases he's got over the course of his life and got cured from. So they're going to use his blood and test it and see if they can make cures for all these diseases out of it. Yeah. This one guy gets a hold of it and he's like, screw curing diseases. What if we can just make people immortal? 
So he, mm-hmm. he was going and he was going to use it for military applications to have soldiers that don't die. And McLeod's got to go stop them. That's pretty good. The only thing, you'd have to have a write-around. One minor plot hole, and when I say minor, it is definitely minor compared to the plot holes in Highlander 2, but one minor plot hole is that after he killed Kurgan and received the prize, he became mortal. I mean, he you, just... It, it's an easy write. It's an easy write. It's an easy fix. Yeah, there's still traces of the way your DNA was... Yeah, but yeah. technically he probably still can't get sick from much stuff. I mean, he can get stabbed or shot and killed. You can write that into As far as the stuff on the DNA level, the way his body's adapted over time, all that stuff's probably still the same. Yeah, that's an easy fix. That's pretty... What do you think of that, Sandra? Yeah, that would have been interesting. Yes, I would rather watch that than the, the stuff... Than what they came up with. Yes. Yeah, that yes. way you could have Immortals back you don't have to explain much more so you don't have to run the mythos trying to explain the mythos i like that albert that's pretty good yeah he obviously has to have those same dna or antibodies or whatever because like otherwise why would he turn back into if it would have got rid of everything my view is that like if it would have got really just completely reset him back to nothing he would have probably instantly died you know or instantly aged up to just a skeleton or something like that Let's do this. Albert, if you'll watch High Rise, we'll talk about, we'll wait and talk about it next week with Black Hole. Is that okay with both of you? Who's in that movie, High Rise? Tom Hiddleston. It has a great cast. James Jeremy Irons. What's it about? Don't say a building. It's not about the building. (laughs) It's about the people in the building. And it actually may be right up your alley. You may have a a good take on it. You will like it, Albert. It's it's weird. I ended up having to watch it because Denise found out that Tom Hiddleston was completely nude in it. Yes, yes. Well, (laughs) at first I was just going to say, what the heck? But when you said Tom Hiddleston, I said, okay, let me look it up. And then it had all these other people in it. Jeremy Irons doing another Ozymandias impression. So next week we'll do Comic Books, Black Hole, and the movie High Rise with Tom Hiddleston. Well, we thank you all for joining us this week. Again, thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Albert. We are Kingdom Casts Podcast. You can contact us, Kingdom, C-A-S-T-S, at gmail.com, KingdomComics at gmail.com, Kingdom Comics and Kingdom Casts on Facebook and Twitter as well. We've got our personal Facebook pages out there. We're relatively easy to find. Hit us up. Love us, hate us, let us know. We enjoy hearing from you. We cannot thank you enough. The ratings continue to go up, and I'm really humbled by it, both Albert and I. And Sandra would be too if she could see the ratings. (laughs) be be humble sandra i'm humble i'm humble i'm gonna give a special shout out again to joseph koloski for heads upping us on the rob liefeld situation as we started and uh, thank you all for writing in let us know what we're doing wrong let us know what we're doing right ask us questions anything we're just happy to hear from you if you can find it in your hearts share us with your friends and also Uh, give us five-star rating. That really helps. If you enjoy this podcast, please help us out there. We appreciate you greatly. We'll be back next week. And what we tentatively plan to do is review comics, talk about Disney's The Black Hole, and the Tom Hiddleston movie High Rise. Thank you all again for tuning in. Sandra, Albert, tell them good night. Good night. Good night, everybody. Kingdom Casts is owned by Kingdom Comics Incorporated and produced by Stan Daniel and Albert Marsh. No part of this program may be reproduced, replicated, or replayed without permission. Special thanks to Sandra Swindle. Also, thanks to our content contributors, Jason Bean, Tim Bryan, Denise Daniel, 
Josh Duke, Alex Fitzpatrick, Charles Hickey, Allison Marceau, Mark Adam Miller, and Contrita Olstead. Logo designed by Geoffrey Gwynn. Edited by Stan Daniel. Kingdom Casts is copyrighted 2020. All rights reserved. Marky Mark, Blue Falcon.